Jonathan and Hannah for leading us in singing all the way from here. I know. I might buy this, but I think it's the best pilot I've ever seen. I think I just saw someone shake their head. I was like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> all right. As we continue to worship our awesome God, we're going to be opening up in Zechariah, continuing their series looking at the uh, minor prophets and just seeing about how God has revealed himself in that. And as you flip over to Zechariah chapter 1, let me ask you this question. is How do people know that you are committed to something? How do they know? When you come along and you say, and turn on the mic, <laughs> we're committed to good sound. No. Yeah, there you go. Well, how do people know that you're committed to something? I mean, where you're faithful, right? We keep at it. We work at it. You know, somebody, you look at those uh, weightlifters, and they're really committed to something, right? They're committed to fitness and, and to health. You look at athletes, they're committed. They, they wake up early. They're not like me. Uh, they, they work at it. They keep going at it. But how do people know that you are committed to something? Actions. How do we know if God is committed to something? How do we know how he shows that? And as we open up this passage in Zechariah chapter 1, we're going to see a God who is very much committed to someone. Last we looked at, last week we looked at that our God is a God of second chances, and that second chances start at the foot of the cross. God calls people to himself. He's, he's calling people to return to him with a promise of, and I will return to you. What an amazing promise that that is. That we can rely upon. And as we continue, we will be looking at three night visions. Now before we go on, let me describe to you what visions are and what night visions mean. Simply this, they're called night visions because they happen at night. Ah, clever, right? I know. <laughs> visions are not dreams, though. They're not things that happen while people are asleep. They're images that happen while someone is awake. And this is what is happening to Zechariah at night. This is a text that resembles a lot like apocalyptic literature. And the apocalyptic genre um, is, has this amazing and sometimes bizarre imagery. It is absolutely amazing and paints this great picture. It's imagery that helps paint a picture for us rather than give us necessarily meaning. Most famous of all the books is probably something that everybody knows is the book of Revelation. It's funny how most people know more about Revelation than the entire rest of the book of the, book of, of the Bible, but that's okay. See, most people go to the book of Revelation, also known as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic visions present a heavenly perspective on earthly events that are happening or going to happen. But they're very different from what prophetic is. Prophetic words calls a sinful people to repentance. Apocalyptic visions call a downtrodden people to hope and belief. So you see the difference? God sent his prophet, his prophetic word to afflict the comfortable. But he gave visions of hope to comfort the afflicted. 
So Zechariah's visions are similar to those that we find in the book of Revelation. As, as, as John writes and what he sees, the apostle John writes what he sees, he's giving hope to a downtrodden people, the church of God that is being persecuted in an amazing way. He's giving hope to them and paints this amazing picture of a victory in Christ. So the danger here is that we look at something and imply something that is not in the text. So our challenge is to this, stick to the text. Stick to what it says and not try to impose what we feel it says. When we look at any part of the Bible, the first question we need to always ask is, what does this show me about who God is? And let me tell you, there's a lot of what God shows us about who he is here in this text. It's an amazing picture that God paints for us that reveals who he is as he restores his people who have turned to him in repentance. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for who you are and what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we continue to worship you through the opening of your word, God, I do pray, I do urge, I do want to preach so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you and praise you. And Lord, I can't do this on my my own. So won't you make this turn out well? So Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with the necessary power and appropriate affection. Use this sermon, God, to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. Amen. Zechariah chapter 1. Starting at verse 7, and we're going all the way to chapter 2, verse 13. And the word of the Lord says this. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Barashahu, son of Ido, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For what I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched over, out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. 
And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations, who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And I lifted my eyes, and I saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, and to see what it's width and what it's, is its height length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for you who touched you, for he who touched you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come, and I will dwell in the midst, in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join them to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This is the word of the Lord. God will comfort his people. God will bring comfort to his people is what we see in verses 1 to 7 here. In verses 1 to 7, we see that the exile has come, but there's still another king on the throne, as it says right there, which is the month of Shabbat. Just another little reminder that even though the exile is, is coming back, all the people of God are coming back, there's, God is still restoring, and this isn't final. There is a reminder that not, not all things have been restored. And as we continue on here, as Zechariah has this vision here, he begins to see this, this crazy things that we see at nighttime. I saw the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle tree. Myrtle trees are often used as a sign of God's salvation, by the way. In the glen. And behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? So here's the thing. Zachariah has no idea what's going on himself. So he has to ask the angel what's happening. What are these? And the angel replies, and I will show you, as he says. Seeing all these things, Zachariah shows how he needs help 
in understanding what he sees. And what he sees is in verses 10 to 11, he sees these horses who have been going out throughout the whole world and patrolling it. As they said, we have patrolled the earth. And something we got to think about is in the military terms, there's two types of mounted units. You have your heavy ones and your light ones. Today, we think of heavy uh, units as tanks. They're the ones that go in there and smash the enemy. Knights in the medieval times were kind of the heavy units of the time. They would go in there. Have you ever seen Braveheart, which is a great movie? They would go and they smash through the lines. Not so much different from what we see in Zechariah's day with chariots, a type of mounted unit that is there. The other kind of mounted unit are the light cavalry, which appears here in this text. Today, they are the lightly armored units whose mission is to spread out over the battlefield, particularly behind enemy lines, to provide the commanders with accurate information about what is happening all around them. Because information, or lack thereof, can decide the battle. That's what these horsemen are doing. They were showing a picture of God's omniscience and omnipresence. His all-knowing and his all-being everywhere. God's angelic reconnaissance troops patrol the earth. They go everywhere and anywhere with nothing to hinder them, showing God's exhaustive knowledge of all things in all places. They remind even Zechariah and the, the downtrodden community in, in Jerusalem that God has knowledge of all things happening and his presence is felt everywhere. There is nothing that is going on amongst his people or anywhere else that he does not know about. That his presence isn't felt in. This is the omnipresence and omniscience of our God. That he is all-knowing. And he is everywhere. Even more than that, though, we see these horsemen painting a picture of God's omnipotence. Even a brief understanding of military history helps you understand that the person, the commander who knows all the uh, troop placements and, and movement of enemy troops is the one who owns the field and will win. Even if his forces are less. And this is what's happening. When you take God's omniscience and his omnipresence and his omnipotence, you get the absolute sovereignty of our God. These aren't just about horsemen. They're showing a character of who God is. You think about it as they're described. They're going from northeast to west. They're, nothing is hindering them. God knows all things. His presence is felt everywhere and nothing is stopping them. Our God is sovereign. Far more than any earthly conqueror ever dreamed, God possesses sovereignty on the earth. It's an amazing equation, right? Omniscience plus omnipresence plus omnipotence equals God's almighty sovereignty. Absolute sovereignty. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, It is the will of God to manifest his sovereignty. And his sovereignty, like his other attributes, is manifested in his exercise of it. He glorifies his power in the exercise of his power. He glorifies his mercy in the exercises of his mercy. 
So he glorifies his sovereignty in the exercise of his sovereignty. So these horsemen represent this, uh, exor- this exercising of the revelation of who God is, that he is a sovereign God. This directly challenges this common view of God, that God is some God that is out there and has no control of what is happening here. How in the world is that comfort- comforting to anybody? If my God is up there and he's not in control of everything in my life, including the suffering, that means my suffering has no purpose. And it's worse. And it's just suffering. And that sucks. Lack of a better word. God is all-powerful. He knows everything. He knows every pain, every joy, every tear, every laughter that you have gone through, that his people have gone through. He knows it all, every part of it. So this goes directly against this, this dumb view that God is not sovereign, that something can limit. If something can limit his sovereignty, he's not sovereign. That means he's an invaded country. He is sovereign. Absolutely sovereign. Many people suppose that God is only distantly concerned with the affairs of the earth. If that were true, the will of man is what holds sway. The earth scepters rest in the hands of earthly princes, captains of industry, and leaders of fashion. In Zechariah's day, it was the Persian emperor who dominated the scene. But what God is showing Zechariah here, he is showing us too. The powers of our world may look powerful, but our God is all-powerful. God's forces control the field from the east to the west. His sovereignty is magnified, magnificent, and his control is all over the place. God's horsemen range throughout the earth as a display of his unhindered reign. Nothing holds him back. I don't understand how some can have such a small view of God. If your view of God is that small, then your faith is really small. In verse 13, we have this amazing thing that comes out. This God who is sovereign over all things. He comes in God, uh, and the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with him. You see, uh, they just cried out, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy? You hear the cry, you can hear the urgency in his voice, his desperation, and God responds with his gracious and comforting words. Our God is committed to his people. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why? You know, verse 14 says this amazing thing too. He is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Like a husband and a wife should be for each other's intimacy, so is God jealous for his people. 
God is concerned for what is his and comes for his promise, which shows his passion and his willingness to defend. And then in verse 16, I have returned, he says. I I have returned with mercy. Literally, it means I have turned. God has turned back to his people with mercy. Judgment over the exile is over. God keeps his promises. We see that again. Let's go back to verses 2 and 3. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, says to the, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, say the Lord of hosts. The promise is coming true. And as we continue through this, as God has returned back to Jerusalem where he will build his house. You see in verse 17, this again, God says, again, the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. See, this isn't about a re-choosing now. God will again manifest the benefits of their election, which had been hidden during the season of their discipline. There's no re-choosing. God's eternal decree for salvation is not subject to revision. If it was, that means that I'm not sure of my salvation. I am sure. Ephesians 1 talks about this. But Zechariah 1, verse 17, has this amazing thing. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. God will bring comfort to his people. We can depend on the Lord's overcoming comfort. We can depend on the Lord's overflowing mercy. Our God is an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God. We can depend on Him. Though we seem alone, God is with us. For Christ has offered up His plea. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 again tells us that the same message that God gave to Zechariah, we can confidently say, The Lord is my help. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He may take my, my body, but he can't take my soul. Can you say that? Can you say that God is with you? That the Lord is your helper? Can you say that Jesus Christ will not forsake you in this life or the next? If you cannot, then you need to trust in Jesus Christ now. Not tomorrow, now. For he is an all-sufficient Savior. His blood is all the redemption you will ever need. If you have trusted him, then believe the words God said to the prophet so long ago in, in answering to Christ, I am jealous for you. I will come with mercy to build, to bless you so that you overflow with prosperity, with the presence of God. This is a mind-blowing thing. We've talked about this before, right, in the previous um, minor prophets. I struggle with this understanding. I'm a legalist. I, I'm very comfortable trying to, I can do my own salvation, thank you. Uh, you can't, okay? Don't ever think that. 
I struggle with this. God being jealous for me. And I'm not the only one. Why am I? Because I struggle with His grace. I think I can do it. Oh, oh, I know why. It's an amazing thing. In Christ, and only in Christ, God says to you, I am jealous for you. And I will come with mercy to build, to bless you. Our God is committed to his people. We can depend on the Lord overcoming comforts. We can depend on the Lord's overflowing mercy. There's hope for the weary and the downtrodden, the tired, the broken. Come to a God who will comfort his people. The next thing is this in verses 18 to 20. We see a God will repay the evil done to his people. This vision shows the importance of the temple being rebuilt for the community. As the temple is being built, God will bring judgment on the nations opposed to his people. Four horns, as we see in verse 18, the four horns are horns were symbols of, of military might and political might. But then we come along here. These four horns were the ones who were responsible for scattering all of Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. But then God brings in these four craftsmen. See, the power is not in the craftsmen. What do craftsmen have to do with any sort of military might? Have you ever seen a movie where there's like a peasant upright, up, upheaval, and, and then there's an actual trained army? What happens to the peasants? They get wiped out. What do craftsmen have to do? The craftsmen, the power comes from the dwelling of God with his people. What a great reminder of this of a constant theme in the New Testament of God choosing what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And here are these strong nations who God used to punish his people, but they went too far. The people of God begin to cry out. They say, take revenge. As a people, we take revenge all the time. I remember as a youth pastor, I gave my youth the, the, the same lecture every year. I have one of my youth is actually here. So, the, I remember every time having this conversation, I would say to them, look, I know you've been scheming. This was before Facebook. I know you've been talking. I know you've been scheming. I know you think that you're going to do something to me. However, I'm older. I'm smarter. I'm wiser. I have a car. You have two legs. Whatever you do to me, I will do tenfold to you. I made it through my whole youth pastor days as not having anything happen to me. It was great. How often do we have this thing, something bad happens to us, and the first thing we think about is, God, I want to take revenge. Revenge is sweet, they say. That's not what we're seeing here. They say revenge is sweet, but for the Christian, there is no revenge. We can depend upon a God. We can depend on the Lord's overcoming comfort to take care of that at the end of times. As Romans 12, verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Oh, boy. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. 
Here we see that God repays the evil that is done to his people. There is a rest here that God is in control. We can depend on the Lord's overcoming comforts. And as we continue to look through this, as, as, as God begins to take revenge on the nations that scattered, but that is based around how his, he is dwelling with his people. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, we see God will dwell with his people. And the main idea of this vision is a renewed Jerusalem and a rebuilt temple at the center of God's plans for blessing of Israel and of those from the nations who join themselves to him. In verses 7 to 8, we see this, this seductive prostitution, right? Which is often used, uh, which is what Babylon is used to. But before that, we see this. And I lift my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So here's this young man. He's coming with a tape measure. That's what a measuring line is. He's got a tape measure. A really long one. And he's going around and he's going to measure the length and the width of Jerusalem because Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. That's the implication here, right? He comes and he's, to measure Jerusalem, he says in verse 2, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him at the end of 3 and said to him, run! Like, get out of here, young man. You don't know what you're doing. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. You can't measure it. That's what God's idea of prosperity is. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. God will be his protection. How awesome is our God? Remember, we talked about how these are periscopes, right? And you can see relation to revelation. You can see so much of what our hope is based on, what we get to look forward to. But this prosperity that comes through the, through the, through the God being with his people, it will be so great that the number of people, of God's people, will not be able to be contained within these four walls of a city. And not only that, there's no point in having any walls because God will be their protection. In verse 6, it comes and he says, Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds. I scattered you, but run. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Get out of there and come back to the promised land. Run from the seductive prostitute who deceives the nations. She represents the glitz and the glamour of an anti-God world. So run away. Run away and run to God. For thus says the Lord of hosts in verse 8, After his glory sent me to the nations who plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Do you know what that means? You don't understand the intimate relationship God has with his people? When I come and I say to my son, you're the apple of my eye, because he looks identical to me, except he's a mini-me. I go, you're the apple of my eye. It's an intimate relationship. God says to his people, you're the apple of my eye. And whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. What? Be careful. 
What an amazing thing we have. As verse 9 says, And I will shake my hand over them. God will judge the nations that have touched his people. God will dwell with his people. And the outcome of this is in verse 10, sing and rejoice. Why? Because God's promises to come and dwells with them. Our whole aspect of why we gather together as a church is to exalt Christ. We come together to exalt Christ. And as we're gathering together to exalt Christ, we're remembering what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Christ died for us. You didn't deserve it. You're a wretched sinner. God was fully in his right to wipe you off the face of this planet, but he didn't. He chose you. He saved you. You are the apple of his eye. And the outcome of that is we come and we sing and we rejoice. And yes, you may do that through tears and suffering and crying and pain and all of those things, but we still come to rejoice because all of those things cannot take away the hope we have in death. So we sing. And verse 11 comes along. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. As a Gentile, because I'm not Jewish, praise God. Praise God. I was reading through Isaiah. I'm in chapter 25 this morning. And over and over again, it says God will... God's purposes will happen. God's purposes will happen. They will happen. They will happen. And then he comes along and he calls people like Assyria and Egypt his people. The very nations that God judged for judging his people will be his people. God calls all sorts of people to himself. And it's an amazing thing when you look around in a church and you see people from different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different all these things. You know what we should do one day? We should have a potluck based on the nations that are represented here. I know, right? Yes, amen, praise God. But not because we get to eat more food. Because it's a celebration of what God brings together. What an amazing thing. Many nations, salvation will not be limited to the Jewish people, but will extend God's grace to the whole world. Isaiah 56 says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord, to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chose the things that please me and holds fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Our God has to be a sovereign God in order for that to be true, by the way. This has come as Jesus brought the kingdom of God. And in verse 12, we see that the land will be holy. The land will be holy because God dwells there. This is fullest realization of God's promise to Abraham. And the outcome of all of this is God telling everyone to be silent. All people should revere God because of the amazing act of salvation. 
See, Zechariah's vision of a Jerusalem without walls overflowing with God's blessing finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God who dwells among us, as John says, and brought salvation for Israel and the nations. We are still in this now and not yet period between Jesus' first coming and the full realization of the new Jerusalem. But we see here, Zechariah still means something for you and to me. First, Christians need to run away from Babylon. We spend too much time dabbling in the mud of our world. We need to look at Revelation 18, where Babylon is a seductive prostitute who deceives the nations. She represents the glitz and the glamour and the attractiveness of an anti-God world. Second, God's people are to lift up our voices with joy of how we are saved through Jesus Christ and rejoice with one another. Christians should be known by our joyful singing. We are a singing religion. Praise God. And I don't care if it's a good singing or a bad singing. We're a singing And if you sit there and you're like, oh, I sound awful when I'm singing, I don't care. We are a singing because of what God has done for us. Christians should be known by our joyful songs. We are the nation sharing the salvation of Israel of which Zechariah spoke of. Is our singing today reflective of what Christ has done for you? Third thing is this. Just as Zechariah calls on all people to be silent before the Lord, God's people today are to implore people from all nations to stop rebelling against the Lord and to recognize him as Lord and Savior. We are disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. We can depend on the Lord's overwhelming love. So what? I hope you see how important it is to come to the word of God and ask the question first. What is this showing me about who God is? Because it guides you into the healthy understanding of who you are. And it helps you to see that God is a jealous God who is committed to his people. That is the so what? God is jealously committed to his people. Those times you feel like you are alone, that you have been abandoned, that you have gone too far in your sin, God is still calling to you, return to me and I will return to you. you he has made a promise to never leave you nor forsake you, so run to the God of second chances. Run to the God who allows you to crawl up on his lap and beat his chest if need be with the question of why our God is jealously committed to his people. And the only way The only way that you can counteract the lies that are in your head, the lie that God has abandoned you, the lie that God has abandoned his people, is to fight it with the ever stronger truth of his word. If you're not in the word of God every day, every moment, reminding yourself of these things, I don't know what you're fighting it with. You're not. That Christ died for your sins and he rose again. Rest in that. Believe in that. And when doubt begins to creep in, run to the God who is jealously committed to his people.
Let us continue to worship our awesome God. Father God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that we can come together to worship you and to lift up your name up high. Lord, I pray that our hearts and our attitudes would be one that rests in the fact that you are a God who is jealously committed to his people. Lord, may we magnify your name as we continue to worship you. Amen.